0: Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ.
1: Well, good morning. Um, We're going to be starting a new series um, today. You know, Ash Wednesday was just a few days ago, and so we're in that six-week run-up to uh, Easter and so what we're going to be doing is going through these words that Jesus spoke while he was hanging on the cross. You know, And there are seven of them in all, and so the next six Sundays we'll be going through the first six, and then this thing's going to culminate on Good Friday with uh, the very last thing that Jesus said before he died. Um, so it was like last week uh, in the Wall Street Journal they had this very interesting article, I thought, about this couple. They're in their 60s, and they decided to ride a tandem bike all the way uh, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. So they started out in the Pacific Ocean, you know, just touching the Pacific Ocean there in San Francisco, and then they drove, you know, they're not drove, they rode uh, 3,800 miles uh, to do that through all kinds of here they are in Colorado, and um, they finished up at Yorktown, uh, Virginia, it, at the Atlantic Ocean right there. 61 days it took them. And as they were writing you know, some of the stuff about this, they talked about how this was something that they'd always had on their bucket list. So, I mean, you've heard that term before, right? It's just like people sometimes have these plans of stuff they want to get done uh, before they finally kick the bucket, before their earthly time is over. Um, and this, this was one right here. Dr. Samuel Johnson, who was uh, this brilliant guy back in the 18th century, uh, he said, he was quoted saying this, depend upon it, sir, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. I mean, think about that, right? If you knew that you were going to be hanged in two weeks, that would trim the old bucket list down, wouldn't it? It would be like, whoa, okay, there are some things that are just going to have to go. I'm just going to have to pick the things that are, are really important. Now, think about Jesus here. He knows he has about five or six hours yet uh, before he dies. And there's not much that he can do physically at this particular point, having surrendered his supernatural power, right? And so here he is on the cross. And so there's some stuff that he can maybe communicate. But you don't have much time and you don't have much strength, right? This is such a grueling ordeal that he's going through. And so when we hear these, these things that Jesus said on the cross... These are things that Jesus considers of the utmost importance to communicate. So, I mean, that, that alone should get our ears to open and go like, okay, what exactly is he going to be driving at in, during these last you know, hours and minutes that he actually has? And then even bigger than that, this is going to give us a better idea of what God is all about, right? I mean, if you want to know what God is like, and you're going, and you know it's something we all go like, what is God actually like? The best way I think to find out is to read the four Gospels, right? Because there you have eyewitness accounts of God when He took on human flesh, right? So here's God experiencing the very things that you and I go through in our lives. What does He, you know, what does He say? What does He do? What does He like? What does He dislike? What makes him angry? What makes him, uh, fills him with joy? You know, who are the people that he gravitated towards? Who are the people that he criticized or denounced? You know, I mean, this is, this is stuff that we, we got to need to know. And so this is going to reveal to us a little bit more about who God is and what he's, what he's really like. So the one that uh, I'm going to start off with today, we're not going to go necessarily in chronological order here, but just take these things. Um, as they as they come up and we're going to be looking at the beginning of the uh, crucifixion account of John okay so starting with uh, John chapter 19 verse 16 it says then pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified this is a roman governor who had the authority here at this time of life and death right in that culture so they took Jesus away carrying the cross by himself he went to the place called Place of the Skull in Hebrew Golgotha. So he's carrying the cross by himself at the beginning. And if you remember the story in other accounts, it's like the weight was too much with all the ordeal he'd already gone through. Some guy they grabbed out of the crowd to help him carry it. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. So remember, people were crucified naked. Uh, the Phoenicians, I understand, somebody told me this last night, invented crucifixion as a, a very diabolical, super painful way to kill people. I mean, they were sending a message, right? The Romans perfected this and made it even more brutal, and they just took all your clothes off too, so that you're just being you know, more, even more humiliated. So they grabbed Jesus' clothes, and he also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved. Okay, now The disciple he loved is the way that uh, John, the author of this eyewitness account, this is the way he always identifies himself. You get the idea that John and Jesus were very, very close. Uh, Most people think that John was maybe 19, 20 years old. Just a young guy, uh, but a real protege of Jesus. Some people even think that John was perhaps like a cousin or somehow even related a little bit to Jesus But anyway, whenever Jesus would go on like special mission where he just needed a few select guys, John was one of the three that he always took with him, okay? So here's these women and here's uh, Jesus, you know, maybe his best friend, right? John, He, he said, Jesus said to her, woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Okay, that's the one I wanted to look at for today. And when I see this thing, I always, I think of three things. There's three questions that I have. One is, how was Jesus able to focus on this issue here, uh, going through the ordeal that he's going through? I mean, it, it seems like something you wouldn't even think about in the time of this great distress and the big stuff that's going on here, right? Second thing is, why does he tell his mother to go live with John? And the third thing is, I mean, haven't you ever wondered this one? What's going on with his calling his mother woman? I mean, you never hear Jesus, there's never a single time in the gospel accounts where Jesus calls his mother, mother. You know, in the few times that Mary actually shows up, and there are very few, he calls her woman. Why? So I'm going to try to answer these three questions um, this morning, because I think they have real implications for us. So the first one was, how was he able to focus on this issue? Okay, now think about the time when you were going through the greatest amount of physical pain that you ever, ever experienced. Okay, now I would think that for the moms here, that was the time when you were in labor, right? I mean, I don't think I've ever gone through anything close to the pain that comes from that whole experience. I mean, that's, that's brutal, right? I think the closest I ever came to something that was really painful was after my first hernia surgery, and I developed an alias. I don't know if you know what an alias is. I know John does here because he's a doctor. But, uh, you know, your intestines just shut down like they go to sleep sometimes uh, when, after a surgery like that. And uh, so everything was just blocked up. And I'm just in this terrible abdominal pain. And I want to tell you that um, when I'm going through that pain, I'm not thinking of you. I'm not, thinking, I'm not thinking of my wife. I'm not thinking of my kids. I'm thinking of me, right? And I, th- I really believe this, that with intense physical pain, it causes us to become very self-focused, right? Because the pain is so great, we're just thinking about ourselves, you know? And, and even like great emotional anguish is, is kind of the same way. Um, it reminded me of this story called Indian Camp. It's kind of a classic short story by Ernest Hemingway. I think it was the fourth a uh, short story that he wrote, but it's kind of a, an archetypal story of his. And in this story, it's a little three-page story. There's this doctor. He's got this uh, young son. And in the middle of the night, they get, like, awakened, and they go, like, hey, in the Indian camp across the lake, this is up in northern Wisconsin, you know, 1920 or something like that, right? They go, like, there's, they need your help. So they get in a boat. They go across the lake. And there they find there's this woman... Indian woman who has been in labor for two days and she can't deliver. I mean, it's just not happening. And she's screaming in pain. She's in this lower bunk and the upper bunk is um, her husband who has hurt himself badly in cutting down a tree. So he's got this like terrible leg injury and he's in a bad way too, right? And so this doctor goes, man, I, I wasn't uh, prepared for anything like this. What are we gonna do? So without anesthetic, he cuts her open with a jackknife and delivers the baby's cesarean and closes the, you know, the incision up with fishing line. He does the best that he can. Baby's fine, but this woman is just like, you can imagine just screaming in pain. And they realize they haven't heard a thing from the husband, and then they find out that the husband had killed himself. And the only thing they can figure out is that he couldn't stand his wife screaming. It's your typical Hemingway story where you have this code hero, you know, this awesome person who suffers more than anybody else and bears up well, and then you got somebody that just isn't, doesn't have the same kind of pressure, but they just give up, you know. Uh, Anyway, I mean, it's just a graphic illustration of how this just focuses us inward, and I'm thinking what Jesus went through there on the cross, the way the Romans had devised this, he's going through even more than this woman was. Uh, during this whole procedure right here. I mean, this is just an excruciating way to suffocate, and you're just in terrible pain, especially after the ordeal he went through before that. How is he able to focus on the fact that his mother's going to need somebody to help take care of her, uh, and he's, you know, he's, he's thinking of how to manage that situation? And I think the only possible explanation, the only possible answer for that question is this, that God cares deeply and sacrificially about people. I mean, this is like a this is like an this is an obvious indicator that that's the way that God is. He's going like, I care so much about people. I mean, think about it. That's why he's on the cross in the first place. He didn't have to go there. This is all voluntary, and he's going like, yes, but I got to do this for people. I got to do this for for you, for me, for all these people that that need my help. This is going to bring them new life. He just can't even help himself. He's got to do this. And, you know, there are times in our lives, for you and for me, where we go like, God doesn't care. He's just abandoned me in this situation. Isn't he even there? And the answer is, if you think about the story, yes, he does care. He's still got your situation in mind. He's thinking about it. He's thinking about it right now. You know, he's got the ability to think of all of our situations and care about those at the same time. That's how big God is, but that's how... Much he cares deeply and sacrificially about us. And the second question I had was, why does he tell his mother to stay with John? I mean, if you think about it, the, the Bible, several different gospel accounts mentioned that Jesus had four brothers, right? They mentioned them by name. He, they said he has sisters. So he's got this family. And so don't you think it would be the natural thing to go like, hey, one of you guys got to take over now? You know, Right. I think i i got some indications of what the answer is here one of them is earlier in the gospel of john and they mention this time here uh, during jesus ministry where it says in john 7 but soon it was time for the jewish festival of shelters and jesus brothers said to him leave here and go to judea where your followers can see your miracles you can't become famous if you hide like this if you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. They're going like, hey, you want to be a superstar, right? You want to be big time, you know, get a lot of recognition, a book deal, you know, and you'll be a big star. Go there and some, do some miracles. And then John's conclusion, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. And so Jesus is going, you know what? I want to entrust my mother to somebody who knows the score, right? So he kind of disqualified his brothers here. Now let's think a little more deeply about this and let's take a look at Jesus' mother and get a kind of a fix on her. So this is earlier where um, there was a wedding in, in Jesus' territory where he grew up. And it said the wine supply ran out during the festivities so Jesus' mother told them they have no more wine. Now I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, I've been to wedding receptions where they ran out uh, not just wine, but they ran out of the food. I remember this time, like, you know how they dismissed tables at the reception, say, like, okay, you guys can go. We were one of the last ones. By the time we got there, there was no more food. You know, now, this was my reaction. I'm going, like, what are we doing here? You know? <laughs> let's, let's, let's get out of here, you know? I'm not worried about the guy, the people who are setting it up. I'm worried about me. I'm, I was hungry by that time, you know? All these people smiling as they bring back their plates, you know, what I'm saying? Come on, call my table. So it's like they have, she cares. She's going like, oh, I feel bad for these guys who are running the show. She's not mad at them. She's going, oh, man, they don't have any more wine. Um, so this is a person who cares. She's a compassionate person, just a good-hearted person. And then, uh, it, but look at Jesus' response. Dear woman, that's not our, it's the same word that's used when Jesus was on the cross. Woman. It's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. He's going, Look, at, I'm, I'm not, I didn't come here to be a wedding coordinator. I didn't come here just to pull people's irons out of the fire during social full pause or something like that. I got bigger plans, I got a, I got a bigger mission here, and it's not my time yet. And then his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Good advice, right? These are, by the way, the last words that Mary's quoted as saying in the Bible. Do whatever he tells you. Great, great words from Jesus' mother. Okay, now here's another example of how she was compassionate, but not really getting it yet. One time, this is from Mark 3, One time Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. So can you here's Jesus' mother, and she's going like, "My boy isn't even eating. I mean, he's going to get run down, he's going to get sick. I'm worried about him, you know I gotta, I'm going to have to take, take him home you know, and just make sure that he's getting his, the food and the rest and everything that he needs. She's got a mother's heart, doesn't she? She's got compassion, but she didn't realize fully that Jesus got a big ministry, and this is what it's all about. It's about sacrifice. It's like doing what he could, you know, putting himself out there for people who were in need. This is that, that sacrificial heart of his right here. She didn't get it. You know, it reminded me, I'm reading this book right now called San Francisco, and it's by a guy. He's actually a progressive politically, and he lives in San Francisco, but he's going like, the progressive thing isn't working here. There's something wrong. And so he wrote this book. It's a fascinating book on urban policy. And he talks about how drugs are handled out there. And I just talked to a colleague of mine on Friday who I just moved from San Francisco after working in the finance sector seven, for the last seven years. He said, this is absolutely true. San Francisco, open-air drug market, right? So the police are instructed not to arrest anybody. You could shoot uh, heroin, Right out on the street, you're not going to be arrested. And if by some mistake the cops arrest you, you will not be prosecuted. The concept is harm reduction. So, you know, the old model was arrest people, force them to go into treatment, right? But now it's just kind of like make them comfortable and keep them from getting infected or dying from um, doing drugs. And so it's like they have campaigns about using fentanyl and heroin safely. Here's one of the billboards they put up. No overdose. Do it with friends. Use with people and take turns. Try not to use alone or have someone check on you. And this, um, there's a woman there who works in counseling, you know, minist- not ministries, but counseling there. And she said, The way our city is using harm reduction does not work. Harm reduction is like life support. It keeps people alive but it doesn't give them their life back. I mean, let's be honest, if you're shooting dope every day, you have no life, and you need to get your life back. You need someone to restore your life. You don't need someone to make you comfortable or keep you from some kind of you know, connected sickness while you're doing it. You need someone to give you a real, a real life, and that's what Jesus was all about, and this is what sometimes even his own disciples didn't understand that he did not come to bring life support. He came to bring life restoration. I think in so many times in our lives, we're going like, Lord, you know, I know this is not good what I'm doing here, but please protect me. You know, please help me out in the midst of this. And the Lord's going, no, no, you're going the wrong way. I want to bring you real life. I want to bring you life to the full so that you can get the real answers to your, your problems and not just deal with the symptoms that are there. Now, I want you to take a look at John. This is the guy that Jesus wants his mother to stay with. And you're going to see a guy who is fiercely loyal. And there was an incident in John's you know, training as the disciple where they were in Samaria, and people got hostile to Jesus and his group, and John suggested to Jesus that they kill them. And I wanted you to see, I don't know, how many of you have, have been seeing the episodes of The Chosen? Uh, just an outstanding series here. I wanted you to see the way they play this on The Chosen. So the, the scenario here is um, they're in Samaria. The guy on the left, you'll be able to you see him in this clip, is John. guy on the right is James, his older brother. And then you've got uh, Jesus here restraining these guys. But uh, take a look at this. Hopefully this will come up. No, it's not moving here. Here we go.
0: Hey! Where are you going to tell Jesus our plan? The group said to let alone. They also said he gets to make his own decisions. So, let's let him. Why do you think he picked us to plant those fields? I'm starting to wonder about that. If I had known it was a Samaritan's field, Jesus will sort it out. Rabbi, you couldn't wait, could you? We're sorry, we just uh, wanted to clear a few things up, if that's okay. By all means. You Jewish boys are far from home. Yes, as a matter of fact, we are. Shalom to you, too. Here's our traditional Jewish greeting for you. Don't lift a finger. That was a warning. Try it again and see what happens. Quiet, big James. Shalom to you, too. You filthy dogs! I said quiet. Let us do something. And what would that achieve? Defending your honor. They revile and humiliated you. They deserve to have bolts of lightning rain out and incinerate them. Yes, fire from the heavens. Fire? You said we could do things like that. Say the word and it will happen. Why not? We knew we could not trust these people. We shouldn't have come here in the first place. They don't deserve you. Why do you think I had you work Melech's field? What was I trying to teach you? To help? you think it was just to be more helpful or to be better farmers? It was to show you that what we're doing here will last for generations. What I told Fotina at the well, and what she then told so many others, it's sowing seeds that will have a lasting impact for lifetimes. Can you not see what's happening here? These people that you hate so much are believing in me without even seeing miracles. It's the message, the truth that we're giving them. And you're going to get in the way of that because a few people from a region you don't like were mean to you. That they're not worthy? What, you're so much better? You're more worthy? Well, let me tell you something. You're not. That's the whole point. It's why I'm here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Rabbi. As we gather others, I need you to help show the way. To be humble. We will. (laughs) You wanted to use the power of God to bring down fire. To burn these people up? Well, it sounds a lot worse when you say it that way. <laughs> you too. You're like a storm on the sea. Come on. Thunder exploding out of your chests at every turn. <laughs> In fact, that's what I'm going to call you from now on: James and John, the sons of thunder. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Today, it was not good. But strong passion can be a good thing when channeled for righteousness. I just may have to delay giving you that authority we discussed earlier. Or in smaller doses, until you two calm down a bit. <laughs> James, John, you look terrible. What happened? What happened is that James and John needed to be reminded we were here in Somalia to cut seeds, on two burn Bridges. Master, we've brought a guest. I want to...
1: Okay. I just love the way they portray that, you know, and... And then, that's Peter who speaks up there, who can't w- wait to give them a little dig, you know. There's a lot of competition, as you can read in the scriptures about the disciples. But when you're talking about uh, James and, uh, and John, but especially John here, you're talking about a guy who is fiercely loyal. He's a guy who's strong and he's courageous. This is the kind of guy I think you would want to have, uh, take care of your mother, wouldn't you, if you weren't on the scene? I mean, he would, he would do the job. And you, can you kind of see what Jesus is up to right here? How his plan for them and for us is spiritual growth. I mean, here you've got one person who is strong and passionate, but he lacks some compassion, right? And on the other hand, you've got a person who is compassionate. And she's kind and well-meaning, but she's still wavering a bit about just, okay, who is Jesus and what's he all about? And you bring these two together, and you got a chance for growth. And can you see this happen in in your own life? And I can see this in mine, where he puts me together with people who have just different uh, temperament, different kind of mentalities, different way of looking at things, and he refines us. You know, it's the iron sharpening iron. I think he does that in marriages. He does that in families among brothers and sisters. He does that between parents and kids. He does that between friends and neighbors and coworkers. God's at work in our lives, you know. His goal for us is not necessarily happiness, you know, the temporary stuff. His goal for us is growth. And it tells us in Romans chapter 8, we've been predestined for growth. Uh, it says, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him, who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. We always read that verse and we go like, yeah, God's going to make everything successful for me. But that isn't what it's talking about. It's saying he's working for our good How? Verse 29, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. These things that are happening in our lives are to help us to grow closer in our temperament and our character to Jesus. And sometimes that's a, that can be a painful thing. My third question is like, why does Jesus call his mother woman? I just thought that was, it just seemed kind of strange the first still seems kind of strange in a way. You know, it's interesting, um, that part there where he talks to her from the cross, calls her a woman there, and then talks to his disciple. But, you know, that wasn't the first time that Jesus had kind of an interesting take on family. Like, check this out in Luke 9. This one guy comes, uh, that Jesus talks to this guy, and he said to another person, come follow me, Jesus says to him. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told them, let the dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. He's going, we don't have time. You can't go to your father's funeral. Let's get to work. Doesn't that seem, that seems a little different, doesn't it? How about this? Another said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, that's a reasonable request, right? To say, hey, I, I'm going off to follow Jesus. He goes, no, we, this, is, this work is too important. Let's just do it. Let's, let's get on with it right here. New priorities. Uh, this is, is even more radical. Jesus said this one time, don't imagine I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will write in your own household. We as American Christians, many times, like me, I grew up in a Christian household. So it's hard to understand this verse. But if you're a, if you're a Muslim background Christian, if you're a Hindu background person, you get this. He's saying there's going to be choices, painful choices, that have to be made for Jesus sometimes and to say no to your family. I can't do this the way you want me to because Jesus is my life now. He's the center of my life. He says, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. And if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. New priorities when we're in the kingdom of God. And, you know, let's go back to that place where Jesus' family came to take him away, right? Because he was overdoing it. And here's what happens when they find him. It says, then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is redefining what his family is. And I think what he's saying here from the cross and to Mary is this, that in Christ, we are part of a new community to continue Jesus' work of life restoration. He's telling Mary here, look, you're going to have to back away from thinking of yourself as my mother, and now I want you to think of yourself as my disciple. And I want you to think of yourself as someone who's part of a new community, a community that, inclu- that includes you, you and you and you, and, you and, and it includes me too. And we're part of a, a community that's got a big mission, not just to take care of our families, although that's still super important, but it's also, but it's, it's a bigger mission even yet, and that is to reach the world and those people out there that Jesus has such compassion for and to continue his work of life restoration. You know, there was a mother in Chicago that really exemplifies this. Um, This picture right here was taken by security camera in the train station in Chicago. And this young man right here that was caught on video uh, had just held up... um, a conductor and robbed him of 100 bucks. He had a 9 millimeter pistol, pulled it on this guy. He's a sophomore at Loyola University in Chicago, and he said, oh, I was hungry. Um, I I would suggest selling the gun, you know, if you're that. Or or go home, you know, and say, Mom, uh, what's for supper, right? But he, he was pretty hungry right at that moment. Anyway, this armed robbery. So they put this on the news. They go, like, can you help us find this guy? You know, we want to stop this crime. His mother recognized her son there. And instead of doing what you'd expect where she's going, okay, we got to hide out in a basement or we'll get you a lawyer or whatever, she's going like, you're coming to a police station. Why? She sees the big picture. She's going, I don't want my son to get away with this kind of stuff. What's that going to teach him? I want his life to be restored. I don't want him to be happy right now in the moment and just comfortable. I want to see him repent. Right? And that's what she did. Uh, Zion Brown's mother, you know, she got it. And I think that's what Jesus was teaching John, and that's what he was teaching. That's also what he was teaching Mary here. You know, I think to summarize what I've said this morning, what I got out of the story is this. I think God wants us to exchange our bucket lists for his kingdom plans. You know, I talked about that at the beginning. You know, the plans we have for the future and what we want to do. And I think Jesus is saying, look, I want to I want you to go beyond that. You know, you belong to me now. And I've got these priorities which are huge. And I've got a world that I love and people that need, that need what you got. And so I want you to focus on that. And, you know, sometimes that will, that will uh, intersect with what we have as our plans. But sometimes stuff that's in our plans has got to fade away, doesn't it? It's just not going to be that important in the light of what Jesus has done. And so Jesus is saying, look, you're part of a new community. You're, you know, We're doing great things, so let's get on with it. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to you this morning, I think we find ourselves in the same boat as uh, Mary and John in this situation. And so we hear your voice, too, where you're saying, look, I got, I got good stuff for you to do, and I got big plans, and you're part of a big family right now. And so, Lord, may we may you just show us how to implement this in our own families among our friends and our co-workers people in our neighborhoods let your priorities be our priorities Lord and empower us like you empowered them uh, to follow you in this way and I pray this in Jesus name Amen
0: Thanks for listening For more information about Community of Hope go to www.cohchurch.com God bless you today.